Okay, Liz, here's some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs, you cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. NetSuite.com slash Hollywood. Liz, should we do a plank? No. Just like a nice 60-second plank? No. 30-second plank? Maybe tomorrow. (laughs) Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Liz Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A., and with me is my high school friend and writing partner of 18 years, Sarah. That's me, Sarah Fain. On this podcast, we talk about being writers in Hollywood, how we balance a career and friendship, and how to survive the war of attrition that is life in Los Angeles. Today, we've got a very special episode. We have been asked in the past who our dream guests would be, and we always say Channing Dungy, the president of ABC Entertainment, Well, Sarah, today is the day. Channing is here. We are so excited. Yay. Um, And we'll also share an exercising at work hack. And Liz has a celebrity sighting at the doctor's office, which all Angelinos know is a great place to see a celebrity. Mm -hmm. Okay, Sarah, it is time for the main event. We're so excited to be welcoming badass extraordinaire Channing Dungy to Happier in Hollywood. Channing is the president of ABC Entertainment, overseeing all development, programming, marketing, and scheduling operations for ABC Primetime and Late Night. Since being named head of ABC Entertainment in February 2016, Channing has shepherded in a wide variety of successful programming, including the number one new drama on television, The Good Doctor, and the most watched show on television, Roseanne, which we'll discuss. Additionally, she is responsible for the return of American Idol. Channing is also the person who picked up our show, The Fix, which will premiere on ABC in the spring of 2019. Under her direction, the network has proven to be the most social network on air and holds five of the top 10 most co-viewed series. By creating a supportive environment and supporting visionary storytelling, Channing has created a hub for talented and provocative producers where they can realize their vision. The network has raised a platform for series such as Splitting Up Together, Blackish, How to Get Away with Murder, and The Goldbergs. Additionally, she has helped reinvigorate long-running series such as Grey's Anatomy, which is poised to break television records next season as the longest-running hospital drama on air. Channing, who graduated magna cum laude from UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television, is a visiting professor at the school and serves on the school's executive board. 
She's also a founding member of Step Up, a national nonprofit membership organization dedicated to helping girls living in under-resourced communities to fulfill their educational potential. Channing, welcome. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited, too. This is actually my first podcast. Oh, well, we'll try and make it easy. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we thought we would start with the story of how you came to work at ABC Studios, um, which was Touchstone Television then. Yes. In 2004. Yes. So we heard you came in to pitch a TV show. And ended up with a job offer. Yes. <laughs> That's never happened to us. All the times we've pitched TV shows, nobody's ever offered us a job. It was a little, there was a little bit more space between uh, Suzanne Petmore Gibbs, who you guys had spoken about on a podcast a yes. few weeks back, was a friend of mine. And uh, I went in to meet with her about wanting to pitch some shows for television because I was independently producing at the time and doing it mostly in the feature side. And the process on features is so slow. And I knew the one thing I knew about television was that it was much more rapid fire. Mm. So I had set a meeting to go meet with Suzanne. And in fact, that meeting was canceled because the day we were supposed to meet was the day that Lloyd Braun and Susan Lyon were fired from ABC and Steve was given the job and a whole bunch of transition was happening. Oh, my. So when I sat down to meet with Suzanne a couple of weeks ago, she was moving from the studio where she'd been for many years to the network, to follow Steve to the network. And so we talked for a while and she said, look, you know, I I wanted to buy a project from you when I was at the studio. Now I'm going to the network, but I'll set you up with somebody to pitch to. But hey, this was like how Suzanne always was. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, there's a new guy coming in at the studio and you'd be great and you should really work there. And I said, well, no, 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 I I really want to keep producing. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. She says, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then two days later, Morgan Wandell, who was replacing her at the studio, called me up and said, Suzanne told me to give you a call, which is typical Suzanne. <laughs> wow, yeah. right? Didn't listen to you say no. No, no, like, exactly. <laughs> so I actually ended up sitting down with him kind of as a favor to her because she had arranged it. And then we really hit it off. And then shortly thereafter, I had a job offer. Wow. And that's kind of how it happened. Wow. That's a great story. I, it's when we had we had dinner with Suzanne in New York, one of the last times we saw her, and she was saying, you know, I'm responsible for Channing being at ABC. I want everyone to know that. It's true, and I give her all the credit. It's really true. She changed my life without me even knowing it. Right. Well, we're so glad that happened because that gave us the opportunity to work with you. Um, and you give the best notes of— Thank you. Anyone we've ever worked with, they're clear, they're concise, they make everything better. Um, how do you approach that? Like, where does that come from? Is it because you were a, were a producer? You know, it's one of those things where I went to film school at UCLA. And one of the things I loved about the UCLA program is that they had you do everything. You Mm -hmm. directed, you edited, you got to shoot film, you know, as as a DP, and then you had to take screenwriting classes. And I was terrible at the screenwriting classes. Terrible. Mm. <laughs> I mean, my my scripts looked good because right. <laughs> I understood the form, yeah. right? But the and this is where I really learned that writing is it's a combination of the head and the heart. Mm. And I had the head stuff down, but my characters didn't speak the way that people talk, and the emotional connection just didn't get there. It's, it was it was really hard for me to make those things connect. 
but I loved the class because mm-hmm. I loved reading other people's work. And then when we would have sort of what we called workshopping, but it was yeah. really the process of sort of reading and giving feedback. Uh-huh. Like those were my favorite days and I was so excited. And I went in and I sat with my professor in one of our one-on-ones and I said, look, I know I'm terrible at this class. If you have to give me a C, I totally get it. But I, this is my favorite class because I love the workshop days. And I love working with my colleagues and they, well, I guess they were classmates at the time, but I love working with my classmates and they would always give me comments back saying things like, you saw something in my piece that I didn't see or the way that you articulated that to me was so helpful. You really helped me unstick a hard part, you know, and that just brought me so much joy. And he laughed and he said, you know, what you're doing is development. And there are a lot of people who do that job that aren't nearly as excited about it as you are. So I guess it's something that I sort of came to almost naturally. And then over the time, you know, one of the things I always tell people that are coming up in this business is read as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Because when you've read five scripts, one's the best and one's the worst. Mm -hmm. And when you've read 50, one's the best and one's the worst. And when you've read as many as I have now in the – 25 years that I've been in this business, you could probably stack them end over end and surround the globe. (laughs) You know, it's not that you can now say that one's the best or one's the worst, but it really does give you a a palette from which you can then articulate many different things. You know, you have a sense of what works. You have a sense of different rhythms. You have a sense of how people bring dialogue to life. You have a sense of how stories are put together and how things build narratively. And you can only get that by sort of building that mental and emotional database by doing the work, right, by reading the material and really getting a sense of it. Yeah, what's interesting is so often we say, well, when you get notes, think about what's the note behind the note. Yes. And you're great, though, at giving the note behind the note. I, I, I <laughs> just cutting yeah. straight to the actual note. So we appreciate that as the writers who are getting notes. Well, thank you. It's yeah. really helpful, even if it can be painful at times. Yeah. And, <laughs> and also, I think it's making me think about every show has the thing that it should be. Mm-hmm. And the notes you give make the show be more the thing that it should be, as opposed to making it this thing over here. Right. Mm-hmm. It helps everything have sort of the most integrity. And, and clarity. And like, yes, and clarity. Yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you. I think it helps when you have a... You, you want to get on the same page with the people you're working with, right, mm-hmm. in terms of where we're all trying to go together. And then really think about, is this going to be something that is going to help further shape and clarify what we're doing? Or is this yeah. just a note for the sake of giving a note, right? Because you can make anything different. And right. <laughs> a lot of times you can just, you know, kind of be zigzagging around as opposed to going in a direction that, that is going to help things be clearer and more more the essence of what it is trying to be. Yeah. And I also try to really focus on, I mean, I may... I may think that characters should never wear red, right? Mm. It isn't really going to make a big difference mm-hmm. in the story, you know, but people get really hung up sometimes yeah. on notes that are not really going to change the the overall effect of the piece. Mm-hmm. So I try to really stay away from that stuff. That's not where I feel like my voice is going to be the most helpful and focus more on, you know, if I know that the writers intend for the story to go to this place or this is what they really think about that character because you can hear them talk about the project and you you get the sense of, oh, yeah, this is the story that they want to tell. And then it's not the translation between what's in their head and on the page is not getting there. And I feel like one of our jobs as executives, we're the sort of first line of defense, right? We're going to see and experience the material before it gets to an audience. And if we, who are so much more intimately involved in the conversation, aren't quite getting, Mm -hmm. you know, the step from A to H, you know, then we have to find out how to add a few more letters in that journey to get to the place we need to go. Mm -hmm. 
Now, do you miss being so involved in development? Because for years, you were the head of development. You were, I mean, in there day to day. Now you have so many other responsibilities. Has that been an adjustment? It's been a huge adjustment, and it is something that I miss tremendously. You know, the amount of time that I get within my current role to be truly creative in a hands-on way is about 20%, which is not a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. And then there are points in the year, you know, particularly sort of like late December through January, and then again, kind of end of April into May, where um, creative gets to take, Mm -hmm. you know, the the top priority. And I actually get to like blow things off that I don't like and talk about (laughs) like, you know, we have to do that budget thing later because we have pilot cuts coming in, you know. Mm -hmm. And that part for me is really exciting because I do that is where my heart really truly lives. Now, Channing, we want to ask you because you're a role model for a lot of people for a long time. You're a role model for us, even though I think we're like almost the same age. (laughs) We we look up to you enormously. Um, But, you know, now is the first African-American president of a major broadcast network. You're a role model on just like a whole other level on just this huge platform. Does that feel like a heavy responsibility? Is it something you think about a lot or do you just sort of go about your business? Do you just sort of go about your business? You know, I mean, what was funny for me when I when I when I got this this job, you know, I knew it would be news. Right. And I was thinking that it would be news in a sort of Hollywood reporter variety kind of way, Uh you know, news. And suddenly it was like. News news, like newspapers everywhere, you know, the first black female, you know, and the thing is, you don't really wake up in the morning thinking I'm the first black female, you know, you just kind of wake up in the morning. So it was that was really overwhelming for me. And in fact, I couldn't even really handle all of the press and the papers and what have you. I had my husband go out and buy copies of everything, and it's all in a bag in the closet because I want to save it for my daughter because I feel like my son, at the time I only had a daughter, but I feel like at some point they're going to want to look at it. I just, it's too much for me to take in, right? So I, I think if you get too wrapped up in the idea of charting a course or being the, you know, it, it almost paralyzes you and then right. you can't act, yeah. right? So I just kind of focus on the day-to-day and doing the job that's in front of me and wanting to do it well. But that that hasn't changed. You know, every job I've ever, ever had, I've always wanted to do well. So it is interesting because certain times there are decisions or there are things that you do or say which you feel are going to have bigger ramifications just because of who you are and in, yeah. that, in that role. And certainly at those times, you're conscious of it. Now, you have been a mentor to a lot of people. We know that because we benefit from those people's experience with you every day, both Mm -hmm. at ABC Network and at ABC Studios. Um, Do you have mentors? Who have been kind of the key mentors for you in your career? That's a great question. The yeah, mentorship is truly important to me. I feel like we are all here standing on the shoulders of the people that came before us and mm-hmm. I have been so fortunate to have learned so much from so many people. You know, my uh, I worked with a guy named Ed McDonald at my first executive job which was being ready for the oxymoron here. I was mm-hmm. the story editor for Steven Seagal's company. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you're thinking to yourselves, well his movies weren't that long on story, but that was the title. Um, but he was my first boss, Ed McDonald, and he he, you know, he was a great mentor and still continues to be a mentor and friend to me to this day. When I was a young executive at Warner Brothers, I worked really closely with Lucy Fisher, um, who had always been kind of known for having one junior executive who was like her executive. And mm. when I got that, that position was very exciting for me. Um, but she was just a paragon of 
in, and she was like such a strong female role model at Warner Brothers in the mid 90s, which was a very testosterone filled place to be. And she more than held her own and also just taught me a lot of really important things that were just basics, but like return your calls every day, mm. how to handle yourself in a notes conversation. And she was so adept at working with writers who were very prickly and, tr- you know, mm-hmm. and tricky. And, you know, in, in features, <laughs> the writer, you know, it's it's a very – in television, the writer has, you know, primacy, right? Because it's like you're the showrunner. Right. You're creating that hole and the directors kind of come in and out. Yeah. Um, but the, the the journey before the director gets involved in movies, there's this really complicated dance with the writer that is like a very long – process, you know, and like written notes and then big meetings to discuss the notes and, you know, because there's so much time there, right? And I learned a lot about how to give notes from Lucy because all that stuff that had to be written first really forced your brain to think in in good ways. Um, And then there's another woman at Warner's, Courtney Valenti, who is, again, just sort of a paragon of how to conduct yourself impeccably as an executive and, you know, writes this still to this day, the best thank you notes that I've ever received. So, yeah. That's an area that I am sadly lacking in. Thank you. Yeah. Channing, we all talk about how we need more diversity in television, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. And it it feels like there's just like a lot of articles about it and we're constantly talking about it. And then they do studies and not much has changed. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you think we can do as people who are, you know, on the ground? Like, what can be done to change this? It's interesting because we actually just had a I had a sit down with uh, people at Disney, who are doing kind of studies internally and looking at three different areas for us, right? So they're they're looking at how we're doing in terms of content, which is defined as all the things that that Walt Disney Company is putting on the screen. Mm. You know how we're doing within in our own company, sort of like people in our company, and then sort of you know overall culture, like the people that we interact with, you know, outside the company, but who are working as a part of our team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because you look at the stats and, like, I, I I kind of move through the world thinking, like, yeah, we're doing really well. And in some of the stats, we are doing really well. And in other areas, you're like, wow, there's definitely room for improvement here. And I think that one of the challenges is that this is a business of relationships. And it's so much about, you know, everyone always hires who they know yes. and they work with who they know. And, you know, we try as much as we can to sort of expand those circles. But that's the single biggest thing that I think that can happen, mm-hmm. you know, particularly for people like you who are involved day to day in production is really working to expand those circles and to invite people into the process. Because when you have young directors of color come and shadow on one of your episodes, when you have people that get to come and visit the writer's room, and sit in there and see how things work because sometimes so much of it is about access. And, you know, we've been doing a lot of what we call networking mixers. I don't know if you've been to any of them, but we do them at the lot where we bring some of our showrunners in to meet with people that are in our writing and directing programs just so that they can do like speed dating kind of Mm -hmm. and get to know people because then that's one of the ways to just open those doors a little bit and give Mm -hmm. people access so that they can get into those conversations a little bit more. Yeah, it's hard because you it, it almost feels like there needs to be some like, OK, it ha- we have to have this certain numbers just to force it to happen. Like on the crew side, especially, I think it's challenging. Yes. In my observation. Yes. Because, again, it's a, it's a very tight network, yes. you know, and you have yeah. people that are like, I've been a boom operator for 33 years yeah. and I've worked with the same six people for the whole 33 years. You know what I mean? Right. And getting new people into that conversation is tough. It is. Yeah. But I think it is important. You know, I, I really work hard with my 
teams in current programming because they oversee the hiring of all of the directors and the writers on the staffs. And, you know, to really for us on this end to be pushing and encouraging to have people make those quotas. And yes, it is about, you know, the word quota, you know, and sometimes yeah. it's about pushing people past their comfort zone on it mm-hmm. and really challenging them when they come to and say, well, we went to like these seven people for to direct this episode and no one is available. And it's like, go back and look again. Mm-hmm. Are you sure that no one is available? Right. And sometimes that's the case. But if you don't really push, you're never going to get people because everyone wants to just fall back into their habits. Right. And there are people who are doing it successfully. So we know it's possible. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, the, absolutely. The talent yeah. and, and the talent pool is is smaller still, but it's continuing to grow. Like yeah. every year it is growing more and more, and it's important for all of us to continue to help it grow. Yeah. One thing that I think is a positive development, at least on the male-female side of it with directors, mm-hmm. is that for years, as we all know, a woman director would like say one you know, sort of harsh word to the crew and she yeah. was dinged for life, yes. whereas a man can go blustering around and it's yes. not a problem. For a hundred episodes. And I do <laughs> feel that, that there's a recognition of that now and that women aren't getting dinged so quickly mm-hmm. um, for that behavior. And I'm very happy to see that change. I've heard a lot of ma- male showrunners being like, oh, my gosh. I'm now realizing this happens. I'm going to counteract it. And when I hear that, I'll question it. Yes. So I do think people are trying to change. Yeah. And there are a lot of female directors now that are so in demand, right? And and like they're some of the hardest ones to get that everybody's after during pilot season and everything else. And that's really exciting to see. Yes. It is very exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, So we have to ask you about Roseanne. Mm -hmm. This has been much in the news lately. Um, So for anyone who doesn't know, ABC, you swiftly canceled the show, which had unbelievably high ratings, after Roseanne tweeted racist and anti-Semitic remarks. And you had to make this very public, very high stakes decision. How did that feel? How did you approach that? It was, I mean, the... It was one of those things where immediately the the decision about what to do was very clear. That was not, you know, there was no real hesitation on my part at all. And what I was so grateful for was that senior management at the company felt exactly the same way. And it's important because when you're making a decision that has that kind of ramification and that potential, you know, you know, financial implication – it's it's helpful to feel like the whole company has your back in making mm-hmm. that decision, yeah. which was, you know, all the way up to Bob Iger, which was great. And it was also gratifying that we were able to make that happen so quickly because at a company as big, you know, ABC is owned by the Walt Disney Company and big corporations aren't known generally yes. for swift decisions. So it was great that we were able to just do that. Um, it was it was. It was one of those things where in the moment it just was very clear and this is what we're doing. And then I think the – you know, I, I certainly knew that you're canceling the number one show and it was like the number one show by like a, a, a crazy right. margin, an unexpected margin. <laughs> so, yes, I was very aware of all of that. I think that I was thinking about that. I did think a lot about the cast and the crew and the innocent people that were going to be affected by this right. decision. But it really felt like it was the only decision that we could make. And it wasn't until after – it had happened, and then the reverberations were so massive. You know, I mean, it was. I mean, it was all over the news. It was like, uh, you know, the, the CNN crawl like all yeah, day. Yeah. You know, I had a friend who texted me from Paris who said, "I just woke up and I'm in a cafe, and you're on the front page." You know, yeah. it was. I mean, wow. you know, I I really didn't feel like it was going to be that big, but it, you know, it, it was. But I am glad 
I'm glad that we did it. I'm glad that we had, you know, the support internally and externally. And then I'm really glad that we've been able to put the Connors together because now we've got that cast and crew back at work, which feels really good. Yeah, Yeah, because what was too bad is I watched the show. I thought it was a great reboot. And it really, I mean, it really presented, you know, sort of what's going on in America and both sides. And it was bringing people together um, in a way that we need. So I'm glad that the Connors are going to continue and we're going to have that point of view. Absolutely. It was a great show. Thank you. And there's a lot more stories we think we can tell with that family and in that world. And so we're excited about that. Well, and the cast, I mean, come on. I know. You've still got an amazing cast. Yes. Channing, you've been a woman working in the entertainment industry for a long time, as are we. Um, So this whole Me Too movement that has sort of just gone astronomically huge. um, (laughs) Do you think it's a watershed moment? I do. I think, you know, what's interesting is what's good is that now a lot of things that had not been part of the conversation are part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that people who at different points in their life might have felt that they couldn't say something are more empowered to say something. I think that it is giving everyone uh, an opportunity to really examine what their behavior is like, particularly in the workplace, which sounds so ridiculous because, you know, everyone here is grown men and women and they know better. But like, let's be clear, you know, people have not been behaving their best Mm -hmm. selves much of the time. So I think that for those reasons, it's all good. I, I don't feel like this is the sort of thing where now, like, the light switch is turned on and everything's all better, right, right? right? And I think it's kind of one of those situations, like, when people ask me about, you know, diversity and, you know, inclusion and, you know, all of that. I think we'll know we're there when we don't have to keep talking about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's how you know it's it's not an issue anymore, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like a, a, a bad example of it. But at this point, nobody, in at least in the United States, questions that both men and women can vote, right? You know, right. Uh-huh. for a long time, <laughs> yes. that was a really big yes. deal. But now it's like, yeah, everyone's voting. Yeah. I mean, hopefully yeah. everyone's voting. Yeah. This is a question. Everyone, please vote. That's all yes. I'm saying. Yes. Uh, but but you get to a point where that's not a conversation anymore. So someday, hopefully, we get to a place where we don't have to talk about Me Too and we don't mm-hmm. have to talk about diversity and we don't yes. have to think about those things because it's just the way the world is. Right. So I think we have a long way to go in terms of the Me Too. Yeah. We, um, I do think younger people, though, have a, a much more, uh, every, to them, it's much more like, oh, women are treated this way? Like, that's so weird. Yes, you yes. Know, and, like, I mean, young, th- but they're also that old. way about diversity. Yeah, I mean, you know, oh, yes. They have, I mean, you know, the kids my daughter's age, they're like, you know, this child in my class has two mommies, this child has two daddies, yes, you know, yes. this person, you know, everyone's biracial. And it's, it, for them, it is just much more n- norm for them, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, and hopefully then maybe by the time they have kids. We're in a world where people are, you know, celebrated for their differences instead of set apart by them. But it's, you know, we still have work to do. Yeah. Now, speaking of kids, we, you know, it's a weird thing where when you're with a powerful woman, you don't know if you should ask about her kids or not. Love talking about uh, my kids. <laughs> yeah, you have two kids, Eden and Alice. Yes. And we both have kids. And, you know, you seem like such a present mom, just as someone who follows you on Instagram. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, but your job is, 
an insane job. I mean, it is 24-7. How do you manage that? We're always trying to figure it out for ourselves. Yes, yes. It's Look, it's, it, it takes a village, right? First of all, I feel like anybody that pretends that it doesn't is, mm-hmm. is really being disingenuous and making yeah. everyone else feel bad. I have a husband who's great. He's a wonderful partner. We, you know, definitely sort of share a lot of the, the, the challenges and the workload part of being parents. Um, we have an amazing nanny who has been with us since my daughter was 11 weeks right before I went back to work after maternity leave. And so at this point, she's like a part of our family. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, I think the the notion of the whole work-life balance thing, I think, is a fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. Because the word balance in and of itself implies something that is really difficult to accomplish, I think, particularly within a 24-hour scale. You know, I, I try to think of the balance in my life over the course of a week, you know, mm. where I look at, you know, the weekends. And for me, that's from like Friday, you know, end of day. I try to get home Fridays to be home for like dinner, bath and bed. And Monday when I leave to go to the office for the week, you know, that at that point for that period of time, like family's first. And yes, sometimes work has to creep in, but that's the family first part. And then the Monday through Thursday part is the work first part. Although I do try to come home early on Wednesdays to do the bath and bed stuff so that I can Mm -hmm. see them in the middle of the week. And, you know, but there are some days where I, I see my kids every morning, I take my daughter to the bus, I do all those things. And then there are days where I don't see her again until the next morning because I don't mm-hmm. get home from work until after she's in bed. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a pretty strict bedtime person. Like I know some people are like, my kids have to stay up till I get home. I'm like, no, they have to get sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be hard. But I also feel like I feel like I'm modeling a certain kind of behavior for my children and that I think it's I think it's good for them to see that mom has something that she's passionate about and that mm-hmm. brings her joy. And, you know, my daughter, when she was smaller, you know, used to play, mom, I'm, I'm going mommy's office, uh-huh. and she would set up stuff uh-huh. in the living room like mommy's office. And she still loves coming to visit. It's a big deal for her. And I think it's I think it's good because they have time with me. They have time with my husband. You know, they definitely know how important they are in my life. But I think it's okay for them to see that I am also pursuing something that brings me a lot of, you know, personal passion. And it is really cool to work for Disney when you have small kids. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it is. Yes, <laughs> it is. is. true. You do get a bit of a pass yes. there when it's like, oh, yes. I'm going to the Mickey Mouse company. Right. Yes. Hey, Mommy, yes. can you go to the Disney store today? <laughs> Why, yes, I can. Yes. Yeah. yes. And all the Disney Channel shows, all yeah. the premieres. We were just at the, oh my God. the premiere of Fancy Nancy. My daughter and her oh, friend got to dress up in their nice. fanciest outfits. You know, those things are really fun. <laughs> there are some good perks. Yes, yes. Okay, Channing is... Two writers who uh, work for Disney as well. I just want to know when you're like going to green light a show. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you look for? Asking just for a friend. Asking for a friend. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good question. So, I think the first thing that I look for is just is the story compelling. Like, am I excited? Am I engaged? Am I reading this script and feeling like this is a ride that I want to be on? Then the second is, you know, obviously, does it feel like it is? Something that is unique and specific and not sort of a carbon copy of something else that we have on our air or that somebody else is doing. You know, we want to have it occupy its own Mm -hmm. space. And I love it when I feel like the writers have a voice and a point of view that is, you know, um, compelling and challenging and exciting. 
And then the question is, does this concept have legs? You know, I mean, is this because sometimes there's something that's great that really should be a movie because there's maybe only going to be three or four good episodes worth Mm -hmm. of, of this story. Or is it something that you really see has the potential to run, you know, for a number of years, you know, and whether it is something, um, I mean, I kind of feel like what we're doing with The Fix, where we have a story that we're telling that's going to be told within this season, but then there's a way to kind of reboot it and do the same thing again with the same group of characters, you know, or even what we did with American Crime, where, you know, each year was a totally different story. We had some of the same actors that were returning, but it was kind of like a, we built an umbrella around it that kind of encapsulated what we were doing. Each, Each year was a different version of an American crime type yes, story. Yeah. And so those are the things that immediately kind of get me thinking. And then, you know, there are a bunch of other things that you kind of drill down after that because I want to think about longevity in broadcast is so, you know, making these shows on the schedule that we do them, the pace that we do them, it is not for everyone. And you have to kind of think about the auspices behind it. Do you believe mm-hmm. that those people are going to be capable of delivering the kind of show you're expecting on the schedule that you want? Mm-hmm. And... Um, And do they have the kinds of, um, you know, the other thing about showrunners is that I feel like they have to have the right balance of sort of the creative mind and the business mind because Mm -hmm. it's running a small business. Yeah. Right. Not even not even that small. I constantly say I so wish I'd gone to business school. Like I feel like that would have the best thing to do to be a showrunner is have gone to business school. (laughs) Right. Right. Because there's a lot of things about that. Like like I feel like a lot of writers think about the creative part of it, which is a huge part of it. Right. Thinking about the journey that these characters are taking over 10, 12. 18, 22 episodes, but it is also, there's you're managing a whole huge crew, 300-ish people that are every day waiting for you to tell them what's happening, and then how yeah. are we balancing those budgets, and where's the money going, and are we doing this, that, or the other? So there's a whole other part of it that's not just the creative part. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. No, you're suddenly running a multi-million dollar yeah. business. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. No pressure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's fun, because it's not just one thing. It's not just one thing. You know? Right. That's why we like it. Right. Well, okay, Channing, we have to mention that your sister, Marin <laughs> is one of the stars of The Fix. Sure enough. She's so fantastic. Yeah. It was actually funny when we were casting, she came in and just nailed it. Even her outfit. We're like, okay, that's what CJ wears. She plays CJ Emerson on the show. But um, it was interesting. It was actually harder to cast her because she was your sister. We had to go through all these sort of <laughs> we were like, steps. Is Marin closed yet? Is Marin <laughs> you know, closed yet? To make sure that it was yet? all, you know, kosher. <laughs> yes. Um, but you guys are both just such, like, dynamic, talented, ambitious women. What are the secrets that your parents hold, you know, that <laughs> you guys just are so amazing? So that we can pair. impart them yes. into our children. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because, I mean, my parents are both sort of very, like, grounded, down-to-earth people who are not anywhere close to anything Hollywood at all, right? So it's funny that we both ended up here doing these kinds of jobs. But I think the biggest benefit, I think, that our parents gave us was this kind of belief that we could do anything that mm-hmm. we set our minds to and that they were very supportive of letting us explore, you know, our creative ambitions. You know, I mean, we did piano lessons and ballet lessons and ice skating. And, you know, my sister did a lot of theater coming up and she played the flute and I played the violin. And, you know, we we dabbled in a whole bunch of different things. But our parents were very willing to kind of support our creative interests and, and, and put us into situations where, like, we both went to music camp and mm-hmm. and different things that kind of let us explore. And I think gave us the the 
because um, a lot of stuff with that comes with that, it requires discipline and preparation mm-hmm. and focus and practice, you know. So there was a lot of that. Like I remember days that I did not want to practice piano, that I was like, you know, you have to put the half an hour in or else. And so that kind of instills good training in you mm-hmm. that you have to work towards your goals, whatever those goals will be. Mm-hmm. And sort of their being willing on their part to drive us where we needed to go and get us to where we needed to be as long as we were pulling our weight by doing the rehearsal and doing the practice and doing whatever else, you know. And then also just being, honestly, our biggest cheerleaders and our biggest supporters. You know, when we were little, we used to make up dance routines to like the very lows. Remember those 45 singles and yes. you had to put that yes. little yellow yes. thing in the middle yes. so that it'd fit on the turntable? Oh, yeah. We would make up dances and like they would watch them for hours on end. You know what I mean? Like and like be the best. They were like our best first mm-hmm. audience in terms of all of this. And I think it gives you the confidence to go out and try and also to go out and fail. Yeah, right? that's so important to be able to fail. Yes. Well, you guys were asking earlier about mentors and one that I didn't mention was Mark Pedowitz, who was my mm, first boss yeah. at ABC mm-hmm. Studios Touchstone. And I have said, you know, many times before, but one of the greatest things about Mark as a boss was that he he was always like, give it a shot. And those are such empowering words because the implication there is try it. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, we tried it. You know, and it's giving you permission to fail, you know, which I think is the most valuable thing that you can do as a leader or as a parent. Because if people yeah. think that they have to hit the mark every time, that every show you do, every performance you make has to be perfect, you have to win every time, yeah. then you end up not doing anything. Because right. the pressure to is try. too scary, right? And I think as a parent, the biggest the biggest opportunity you can give to your kids is to let them try. Yeah. If it doesn't end up working out, it's okay. Let's try something else. Yeah, yeah. Give it a shot. That's yes. right. I'm taking that home with me. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, Channing, on this podcast, we're all about how to be happier in Hollywood. Yes. Do you have any just tip for our listeners about how you think they can be happier in Hollywood? Um, It's funny because you had a podcast a few weeks ago where you were talking about doing the loop. Yeah, And I was laughing because one of the things I do is I also do a loop, not that loop, but I do the loop where I go down the stairs from the 10th floor, Mm -hmm. then I walk around the outside of the building and then back up the stairs on the other side, right? That's my my loop. To the 10th floor. Wow. Oh, my God. But it's not outside. (laughs) So, you know, you don't have the sun beating on you. But it's the same idea where you kind of need to clear your head. I often Mm -hmm. have that happen when... I've had a frustrating moment, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to keep your calm and your equilibrium after like a, co- a conversation with a particularly aggressive agent. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to just go do a loop, which is the same thing that I call mm-hmm. it. Um, I think the, the, the happier thing for me is about compartmentalization, right? Okay. And that is whatever I'm doing, be in the moment of the thing that I'm doing. So if I'm at work, I'm at work and I'm trying to focus on my work brain. And then if I'm with my kids, I'm in my family brain. And then I have the other part, which I just, it's like sort of the auxiliary mommy section, which mm-hmm. is like not parenting, but it's all the parenting adjacent stuff, right. like back to school clothes and doctor's appointments and Forms. party gifts and yeah. yes, all that yes. stuff. Right. And when I'm focusing on those things, I'm focusing on those things. You know, I think one of the lessons that I've learned being a parent is seeing how my kids, particularly when they're in that younger toddler phase, whatever it is that they're doing, they're doing with all of their concentration. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. my son is 17 months and he's obsessed with trying to undo the child locks on the door. He will sit there there for, you know, a half an hour trying to do this thing, but he's so into it. And I think that one of the hardest things that we deal with now, because we've got this little device in our pocket that pulls your focus all the time and everything is always like this, 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 this. And I also feel like as women, um, 
you know, I feel like there's a giant chalkboard in front of me where I can see like all the things that are written on it, how they all connect. And, you know, sometimes you just have to kind of quiet your mind and really just try to sit in the thing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, when I'm able to do that, I'm actually better and more efficient mm-hmm. at the thing that I'm doing. Everything takes much less time yes. when you're giving it your total concentration and focus. So yeah. compartmentalization is one of my little tricks to keep me happier and more sane because it's the one thing that kind of helps keep the overwhelm because mm-hmm. all this yeah. stuff is piling around you. Yeah. But you're like right now and it happens in the office too because everybody needs something from you right now and it's like yeah. right now I'm focusing on this deal that we're going to try to renew this show at this price. Let's just think about that mm-hmm. and then we're going to go to this and then we're going to go to that because otherwise you do. You can just drown under the weight of everything that's happening. That is fantastic advice. Yeah. Compartmentalization for sanity. And looping. (laughs) (laughs) We're all about looping, man. It's good. It's good. Channing, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been so fun to talk to you. So fun. I love it. Thank you. Yes, thank you guys. Keep up the good work. This podcast is one of my favorites. Coming up, we reveal a fitness hack you must do at work to get off your butt and stay motivated. But first, an ad break. Liz, there is nothing I love more than having a delicious meal that I didn't have to cook, which is why I have been getting no prep, no mess meals from Factor. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Last night, I had blackened salmon with broccoli and with cauliflower rice. It was so delicious. It was the perfect dinner. Head to factormeals.com slash HIH50 and use code HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code HIH50 at factormeals.com slash HIH50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And now it's time for this week's Hollywood Hack. Get your coworkers to do a plank with you every hour. And Sarah, we got this idea from our actual coworkers. <laughs> um, a lot of the assistants, especially, have been doing planks, squats, and I mean, I don't even know what else throughout the day <laughs> yeah. in a group, like in a circle in the office. It's incredible to see. We'll be like working away and then walk out and everybody will be like mid-squat. Yeah. I walked into Brooke's office the other day and she and Mary were in there like at least a minute into a plank. Oh, was, my God. It was very intense. So you and I have not joined in on this hack (laughs) yet, but um, we should. And we find it very inspiring. And being obligers the way we are, we would be much more likely to exercise during the day, you know, if we were in this group of people saying, hey, it's, you know, four o'clock, time to plank. Yes. No, if we had like an alarm on our phones and every hour on the hour it went off, this just sounds awful as I'm saying it, but I'm just going to say it. If we did that, we would be doing like eight to ten planks a day. I know. That would be ten minutes of planking. Oh, that's a lot of planking. Our abs would be amazing. Yeah. Well, we should do this. That's why it's our Hollywood hack this that's week. That's right. <laughs> and people in our office are doing it. It's not like it's beyond our reach. No. It <laughs> is. It's right there in front of us. Yes. <laughs> and it's right there in front of you, too. See if yes. you, our listeners, can grab some people in your office to do this with you. It's the plank revolution. It's the happier in Hollywood ab bonanza. 
Next up, Liz reveals the celebrity she spotted at the doctor's office. But first, a word from our sponsor. I don't know about you, but we're always looking for ways to get our kids involved and give back in our local community. That's why we're excited to tell you about Student Visionaries of the Year, a campaign by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, which is the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a world without blood cancers. Student Visionaries of the Year is a seven-week philanthropic leadership development program for high school students. Participants form strong teams and fundraise in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor in their local community. I would love for Violet to do this program when she's in high school. This program is transformative. It not only helps students develop valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship, not to mention it looks great on college applications, but most importantly, it's also a chance for them to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on blood cancer patients and their families. You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. And now it's time for this week's celebrity sighting. Liz, who did you see? Sarah, I saw Mindy Kaling. It was Aww. very exciting. We all love Mindy love Kaling. Um, I was going to my doctor and I was in the parking garage and as I was going into the elevator she was coming out she was holding her baby in a carrier and her dad was with her so I think she'd probably just been at the pediatrician there are a lot of pediatricians in that building yeah Um, and it was really fun to see her because I had seen her um, if I might brag at (laughs) Oprah's gospel brunch which you'll remember I talked about yes um, where I went with my sister to Oprah's gospel brunch in Montecito and there were many celebrities there and among them was a very pregnant Mindy Kaling so I saw her pregnant now I've seen her with the baby oh that's so cool and as you mentioned should anyone want to visit LA and see celebrities any medical building in Beverly Hills the parking garage is a great place (laughs) To sit and wait for celebrities. That's really true. They, you'll always see celebrities in medical buildings in Beverly Hills. That's where I saw Diane Keaton in an elevator. Enough said. Doctor's office elevator. And that's it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Email us or send a voice memo at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe if you have not already. And a very special huge thank you to Channing Dungy for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, the amazing Chuck Reed, and everyone at Sencola Sound. You can follow them on Instagram, at Sencola Sound. Thanks to the awesome ad team at Panoply. Thank you to the Plank Queen, our assistant, Mary Merkins. (laughs) And as always, thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at Liz Craft and Sarah is at S. Fain. We also have a Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. Until next week, I'm Sarah Fain. And I'm Liz Craft. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. Sarah, remember when we got on that notes call for the outline for uh, My Love from Another Star Uh and Channing was like, can I be frank (laughs) at the beginning of the conversation? And we were like, oh, oh, boy. And then she (laughs) gave us notes and we were like, yeah, we have to start over. She's right. They were the best notes. It was horrible. Yeah. But she was right. Yeah.